Luke Butler, how are you today? Uh, hello there, Michael. I'm very well, thank you. What's going on with your good self? Well, we are in the process of getting our campaign live. It was reported on, I think, last week in the Sun Herald. Check, check, check. Keep COVID in check. Catchy, isn't it? Uh, it's a campaign to help hunters and venues do a good job of trading through COVID safety. Good idea. So, sounds a little bit boring, but basically, unless we get consumer confidence into a decent place, uh, then it sort of doesn't really matter what the restrictions are. Um, so uh, customers need to feel comfortable in venues and returning to venues. And I think essentially the, what sits behind the campaign is basically just think slip, stop, slap, but for indoors. You know, you know back in the 80s when the, we became aware of sun cancer, or skin cancer, sorry, the Cancer Council ran that campaign which tried to tap into people's habits as they were ready to go out in the sun. It's the same thing. Yeah. We're getting ready to go out to a venue now. What else do you need to grab in addition to your wallet, keys and phone, but perhaps your own sanitizer and a face mask? You know, we've got to make this kind of behaviour habitual and it starts really at the beginning of the journey. You get to a venue, it's too late. You kind of have to go out, get get ready to go out with that mindset, I think. So yeah. that's uh, got me awesome. up at night. Uh, what about yourself? Uh, well, mate, good work on that. Firstly, I think that's um, very clever. Uh, it's not yet ingrained, I think, in Gore and myself. I'll talk specifically about myself in terms of what I have to take out to think about it every time I leave the house. But, um, mate, myself, uh, my business has picked up considerably consumer confidence, I think, within our um, customer base. Uh, it's hopefully reflected in their customer base because um, we're, we're busy, you know, we've had... Um, more people join the team, or an additional person in Phil Gannon, which um, who I alluded to last time. I saw that. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I saw that. Good get. Yeah, he is. He and I worked together many years ago at Keystone. So he actually, when I was GM at Cargo, I think he was ops, and he moved into the GM role when I moved out. So uh, he's a good dude. But mate, it's it's coming back. You know, we're very busy across um, Queensland, across even Victoria, randomly. But there's, there's you know, people are still hiring. Um, but, you know, we're not through the pain yet and, and I think that's a nice um, way to lead into the guests that we've um, got coming on today because, I mean, you and I have been having conversations about this topic probably, well, since the very beginning, pretty much, of the beginning of COVID anyway, and um, it, it resonated with me, you brought it up, but um, I mean, think about obligations as an operator when things get a little bit tough and, and you may not be able to... Um, I guess service your debts or, or trade in a in a solvent manner. Yeah, and it's one of those things that until you've had to think about it and really understand it, you may not be familiar. And it's not a badge I boast too proudly. I guess at some level, but it was I think at least two or three times during timeouts journey where we nestled very close to the edge of insolvency, and it was in during that process and uh, of that that i was you know my mind was tuned really to some of the issues that would be facing operators right now and i guess i I don't know what the answer is but i do know that uh directors boards of directors that i've worked with before most of whom i've got a number of years on the belt seen a couple of cycles just kind of like don't stick your head in the sand on it like it's really important to just go yep that's the situation what are we going to do about it and and make those decisions and so uh but it's one of those that you kind of want to get onto it as early as possible, really, so that you can start making the decisions that you're going to need, I suppose. And I thought that that's where, uh, particularly because we've seen second lockdown in um, uh, Melbourne and then, you know, everyone in New South Wales is still slightly nervous about things and Queensland, again, you know, has sort of seen a few cases and even in New Zealand. So... It's uh, not like the hard bounce that everyone was talking about uh, when the first hit is going to be realised, I don't think. And so, you know, as we sort of go through these tumultuous times, it just makes, we we thought it made sense to chat to someone who might be able to be a little bit better than me as a bush lawyer advising (laughs) (laughs) advising our our listeners on on their solvency obligations. Realistically, there are going to be businesses that are going to have to go... Uh, that are going to go um, under. 
throughout this period. Um, and, and I think, you know, that you would look at the terminology and think solvent, good, insolvent, you know, shit the bed. <laughs> it's just, if you, but what most people wouldn't be aware of is that there is actually, there are quite a few options available and it doesn't have to mean um, the end of the road. It is just um, what is my course of action and you can actually be pragmatic about it and, and, and take it. And, and you're probably, we're trading in an environment where you are better served than ever before to actually navigate that process because there's a few, you know, there's a few exemptions and a few, and a few um, avenues for help that don't normally um, exist. Yeah, yeah, that's right, and it's it's uh, a situation that everyone's well, not everyone, but most people sort of knee deep in shit, aren't they, at the moment? And it's a common experience, so you, you can uh, talk to people, and and uh, and at least there's there's as you say some camaraderie in that, and and information exchange, if nothing else, I would have thought, and and also the market's kind of wide towards it. You know, if it's a booming market and you're going insolvent, it's one thing. If it's a, a down market like this, and Everyone's having a good, long, hard think about their business. Yeah, there could be, there could just be alternatives now that um, you can avail of. So, I think that's the reason why we teed up the next guest, who you chased down, and his name is Luke. Uh, his name is Morgan Kelly. So he works with KPMG. Um, has managed. Um, uh, of a seat of a receivership of a number of um, businesses, um, obviously works closely with organisations to um, see that not happen in the more positive um, side of things. But uh, I actually look um, was connected with him on LinkedIn because he was quite proactively. Um, I guess championing this this same message that, or the same conversation that we were having in, in trying to educate people and and uh, or business owners and, and help them become more aware of what their options were um, right from the beginning of this uh, experience. So um, in the con- in the um, subsequent conversations we've had um, since uh, initially making contact, he um, he's clearly highly. Uh, intelligent, highly aware of the hospitality market, and um, I'm hoping, um, I'm sure he will provide some exceptional advice for people that um, just want to be aware of their options. So that's the reason behind the chat. We do have not a significant amount of time with him because he's an exceptionally busy human being, as you can imagine. Um, but you know, we'll make the best of the time that we have, and I'm sure the information will be useful. If um, you know, if it proves such, we, we hopefully could get him on again to give us a little bit more information. But um, let's see how we go first. No time like the present. So, welcome Morgan Kelly uh, to the Back of House podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. We have been discussing in the pre-game your levels of busyness right now, which I think is probably the shortest possible segue I could get into why we've invited you on, but you are a partner at KPMG based in Sydney, I'm guessing, or in Australia. Yes. Yeah, and uh, you're the hospitality and tourism sector lead partner for KPMG's restructuring services. That's correct, Michael. Well done. That's, yeah, that's <laughs> Fast spot on. Spot <laughs> on. Spot on. I am capable of reading from your CV. Uh, <laughs> Morgan, we uh, our hospitality podcast reaches a number of people in the sector, particularly in Australia, and uh, in in the hospitality business or hospitality game, hospitality hotels, supply chains, and I guess it's a sector that's been talked about as being one of the ones hit most directly by the pandemic. I imagine that that you have a more holistic view. So we're keen to talk to you today a little bit about uh, your subject matter expertise, which is restructuring and I suppose insolvency. Is that a a fair description of what your uh, primary practice areas are? Yes, absolutely. It's, It's a very, very good description. And so, could you just give us a bit of, maybe if you sort of give us a bit of a um, top-down view on your perspective at the moment and then zero in on the hospitality sector. So, what is the general state of the market in terms of availability of cash? And then also, I guess, uh, you know, how that might relate to uh, the hospitality sector and then, I suppose, the implications for people trading in the market at the moment. Yeah, sure, sure. Thanks, Michael. Um, look, I think it'd be fair to say that um, um, from a from an insolvency, restructuring, financial distress uh, point of view, everything's been slowed down by the the government's been able to put in place a number of 
measures which have slowed down um, business failure and business um, businesses going into some form of insolvency, but that's been slowing down. That's been slowing down everything, and there's some unintended consequences that come with that. Um, I think the the COVID crisis is, has led to a of a complete um, um, rethink for the hospitality sector, and as you said, look, it's definitely the one of, if not the most adversely impacted sector of the Australian economy, and probably will continue to be so for the next you know, eighteen months. Um, some of the implications that we're seeing falling out of this are how operators remain relevant and engaged with customers when you're in a closed down period or when you're in limited trade. Um, how consumers' behaviours are changing, uh, and that's that's an across the board question. Uh, the one of the biggest differences that's happened during COVID is that people and there are people who are nervous, um, and there's a lot of concern around infection and being in places which have which are crowded or places where lots of people are going. But and what that's led to is a change and a shift in where people are and where people are going. Uh, which means that I'm in the CBD today and the CBD of Sydney is um, the Barangaroo precinct particularly is is a bit of a ghost town and it's very, very quiet, which is, which is unusual because more people are working from home, less people are keen to get public transport. Uh, it makes people reluctant to return to entertainment precincts and normal entertainment precincts are, are experiencing a significant downturn in trade, whereas... You're seeing some suburban venues or some venues which traditionally uh, might not have experienced the level of trade that they that they are now um, is seeing an uptick because of COVID and because there are more people working from home and that particular venue is experiencing a, a, a increase in food and beverage. Um, one of the other things I'm just as a sweeping comment is that gaming revenues are, are through the roof at the moment. How much of that's being funded by people accessing the superannuation and JobKeeper and JobSeeker payments is is probably open for question. And I'd suggest that the answer to that is a lot um, in terms of how much of that is being funded from from those sources. Um, but um, uh, but that's actually a, a significant uh, that's a, that's a national development and that's something that's happening across the board. But look, what these behavioural changes and changes in the way that we work and the changes in the way that we we move around from from home uh, have have meant some rethinks of high end fine dining, um, the um, the impact on food and beverage and accommodation of looking down the barrel of zero tourism for twelve, eighteen, or twenty four months. Um, one of the big concerns that initially was on people's minds when COVID started was. Are we going to see a decline in gaming and a decline in gaming revenue if, if gaming patrons have had months of, of being away from machines and have had to go cold turkey? But clearly, that hasn't been that hasn't been a big um, a big that, that hasn't presented as being a major issue. But look, some suburban venues were seeing trade increase significantly, um, especially gaming, CBD venues, and entertainment precinct venues really struggling um, due to the you know relocation of foot traffic. At a, at a high level, um, from a time frame perspective, the sector or the hospitality sector has seen three phases uh, that it's had to deal with. There's been this the shutdown and closure phase, which was horrible and is now over, but that was everyone was focused on care and maintenance plans, um, security considerations, who was going to get retained via JobKeeper, which key staff needed to be kept on board. And then the reopening phase, um, which was really focused on how to reposition whatever your offering is within the constraints of the COVID safety regime and social distancing, what the ramp up costs might be, and um, and re-establishing supply relationships. That um, during the close down phase, we saw some very innovative responses by the hospitality sector. For example, home delivery, lots of home delivery. We saw accommodation venues offering hotel rooms as places to work from. If it was difficult to work from home, come and work at the hotel and have have decent Wi-Fi and possibly better food than you might get at home, um, which was uh, – so some of those revenue streams, um, once venues have reopened, have, venues have been trying to – all operators have been trying to preserve as many revenue streams as possible. So some of those innovative uh, responses – have survived through to reopening, and now we've got, you know, trading in the environment of sanitising procedures and sanit and hand, and hand sanitising stations and personal distancing barriers and screens screens and um, uh, you know restraints on the number of people you can have in venue, and all of those social distancing rules, and those have had an impact on 
on revenues as well. So now you've got the the double whammy of the consumer behaviours and consumer concerns and nervousness and the social distancing rules and the the fact that a customer population might have reduced due to foot traffic, but the number of people you're allowed to have in venue has fallen anyway. I think one of the big impacts that we're seeing presenting at the moment is corporate spending um, in two, on two fronts. One is that um, there, I don't think there's going to be any Christmas parties or New Year's Eve parties this year. And now is the time when most operators of larger venues should be banking the deposits for those events. And that's having a big hit on working capital for a lot of these operators. And the, so there's going to be there's, there's that loss of revenue, which you know often gets you through some of the quieter months. Uh, there'll be reduced revenue for Christmas and New Year as well. So I think around um, January, February, there might be some some tricky conversations to have, uh, or some tricky considerations that need to be um, need to be need to be had also. Um, so there's, I think overall, every every model and every forecast and every evaluation that we see is always predicated on us returning to normal, and there'll be some point where everything's back to the way that it was in February. And how long is it going to take us to get there and what's that going to look like? Uh, there's been talk about a, a V-shaped recovery. That's, I think, out the window now. There's the W-shaped recovery. I think that's out the window as well. I think there's a sawtooth recovery um, I've heard about also, which is um, which is kind of depressing because it kind of means that we're going to lockdown and reopening and lockdown and reopening. The, the one that, that, that I think is the, the most appealing or the most realistic is the, the reverse, the Nike swoosh um, uh, recovery, which is at a long tapered recovery back to some form of normality, which we think is probably going to be, you know, in 2022, potentially 2023. RBA's latest, their August report talks about unemployment peaking at 10% with a possible slippage to, to higher than that, maybe up to 14% in December this year as being the peak and then gradually, gradually improving from there. Um, and um, uh, that's that's probably going to drive a lot of these um, a lot of these the likelihood of returning to a returning to a normal position. So look at the moment, I think that it's pretty challenging for operators, but it depends on where you are. There are obviously winners and losers um, in terms of the um, um, so for some of those suburban premises or those suburban venues that are seeing an uptick in revenue. That's really good. But the corporate spend that you would normally see at this time of year and even just corporate lunches and what have you doesn't get replicated in suburban venues. So that's kind of been deleted from the, um, from the, from the P&L, if you like, or the cash flow of the sector. Um, with the, when you think about the possibility of um, us potentially having stricter controls or stricter um, social distancing rules brought in or heaven forbid if something like Victoria happens in New South Wales or, or elsewhere, um, the operators now are looking at a very uncertain environment where you need to really have as much cash on hand as possible and very flexible financial modelling to capture the, the, um, the revenue and cost variables to enable you to respond to a, to a, change, in the, uh, to a change in the environment, whether that's regulatory uh, through introduction of, of further uh, further restraints on trade because of social distancing, or whether it's it's an actual lockdown. Um, sorry, I've, I've, that was quite a long <coughs> that was quite a long answer. So I think I, I better I think I should stop talking. Now. <laughs> it, it does lead, I guess, the to reiterate, I guess, the point around why we're why we're here in the first place. Um, those factors contributing, and a lot of businesses are going to obviously. Um, create significant alarm bells um, and in in some cases you know hospitality people and Mike and I have been talking about this podcast for a, a little while this episode um, because a lot of hospitality operators are obviously very good at running hospitality but if you ask them what it meant to be insolvent um, or to manage their way out of a, a, a crisis um, from a financial perspective um, few would be able to answer um, the question, you know, what technically insolvent means um, and what their obligations are, whether legal or, or statutory um, in relation to um, what they need to report, um, how they need to handle that situation and what steps they need to take. Um, the, un, the uh, I guess, sad um, or unfortunate 
fact of this situation is that there are going to be a number of businesses that need to genuinely um, look down this process. Um, would you be able to bring to light some of those, uh, some of the information relating to, you know, for some for the businesses, people that don't know, what it, does it mean to be insolvent? Um, what are mm. their obligations? What are their options um, for, for navigating their way, um, hopefully through it or having to um, wind up or what, whatever they need to do? Yeah, of course, of course. No, that's a good question. I mean, and the sad reality is that yeah, that's that's likely to likely to happen. There's a few drivers for that. I mean, we've got um, with operators that have that have reopened or or haven't reopened yet, but are thinking about reopening and might not have the funds for for the capital expenditure required for that. There's potentially another borrowing profile. And there's the landlord um, the, the landlord deals that that may may well be coming to a may well be coming to an end, and whether JobKeeper is going to be available. Um, the the question of solvency is simple, but but often misunderstood. Solvency is being in a position of being able to pay your debts as and when they fall due. Um, so insolvency is when you cannot pay your debts as and when they fall due. It doesn't matter what assets you've got. Um, it, it all relates to that ability to to meet those those ongoing commitments. And if you if you do incur if you're insolvent and you can't pay your debts as in the money fall due, if you're in that state and you incur a new debt, a director can be personally liable for that new debt. That's insolvency and that's personal liability for insolvent trading. So insolvent trading is continuing to incur debts when you can't when you know you can't pay them. Um, that's, which is a very um, a very significant uh, focus of of liquidation and something that's very strongly on the minds of directors. So the it's a very important consideration for directors to understand. Now, if you've got debts that are due now and you can't pay them and you ring that creditor and say, I can't pay you today, can I pay you next week? And that creditor agrees to that, then that debt's no longer due. So that's one aspect of, of solvency versus insolvency, which is very important. If you've renegotiated a, a if you've negotiated rather a repayment plan with the tax office, uh, your tax debts are no longer due as long as you're well, they're due in terms of the compliance with that repayment program. So there are it's not necessarily black and white, and there are often indulgences or, um, or or some flexibility offered by certain creditors which are taken into account as well, which need to be taken into account as well. But the question of solvency and insolvency, although it's a little grey, is a major consideration for directors and that's why the government brought in the suspension of that personal liability for incurring debts while insolvent, which was the may have heard of the the insolvent trading suspension or the, or the safe harbour for everyone rules, which is the uh, the suspension of Section 588G of the Corporations Act, that being the, the provision of the Corporations Act that holds that if you're a director of a company and you incur a debt, well, it has no, it, you can't pay its debts as and when they fall due, then you're personally liable for that, for that debt. Now, it's important to remember, though, that, that the suspension of those rules, although that's in, that's in place at the moment, so technically directors, if they're trading whilst insolvent now, and that means if they're incurring new credit or they're incurring new liabilities and their business is in a situation of not being able to pay its debts in the, as and when they fall due, they're technically not liable for those under that 588 because of that 588G suspension. But there are other, there are some conditions around that and there are other provisions of the Corporations Act which are relevant. For example, there's another uh, director's duties are spelled out in sections 180 to 184 of the Corporations Act. Now, those are all the provisions that say you have to discharge your duties for a proper purpose. You have to act in good faith. You have to act in the best interests of the corporation. So, although <clears throat> there is this uh, this safety blanket or the security blanket for directors that they're not they're not liable for debts they might incur. If their business is, if their company's insolvent, they still need to be mindful that they need to behave like good corporate citizens, and it's not a completely uh, free pass to recklessly trade or to incur liabilities recklessly. And those provisions are still there. And directors that are behaving in that manner, or that feel that the that they might be trading recklessly, uh, or they're incurring debts, and they have 
and, and they, they clearly shouldn't be doing that or that's not in the best interest of the corporation or they're not, they're not discharging their duties in good faith, may still be subject to some kind of, um, some kind of problems later on. So it's something to, something to think about. But if the, those, those provisions or the suspension of the insolvent trading rules is, is current until the end of September, now it's possible that might get extended further uh, and, you know, the, 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 that'll be up to the federal government in terms of whether they decide to do that or not. And there's a tricky balance there between the, the accountability and the responsibility of people incurring credit and having confidence that the person you're extending credit to is thinking very hard about whether or not they can pay this debt back. If you've got an environment where you don't have to worry about paying your debts because there's no there's no liability or there's no accountability to to you as a director, then that might lead to different behaviours to to if you do need to think about whether or not you can pay this debt back. And that's a confidence in the credit cycle is very important. So whether whether the insolvent trading suspension is extended past the 25th of September um, is is an open question. If it's not, um, and if if that those insolvent trading rules do end up coming back in. Directors still have a number of things they can do if they do find themselves in financial distress. One option is the safe harbour provisions. And safe safe harbour itself isn't specifically a a thing. It's a defence that directors have against insolvent trading. And if a director forms the view that they might be trading whilst insolvent, but they believe the course of action that they're pursuing at that time is superior to immediate liquidation of the company and all of their employee entitlements are up to date and their AT obligations are up to date. If they're in that state, then there, there is a black letter legal provision that says that that is a defence against personal liability for insolvent trading. That exists and that's there in the Corps Act. Now, that's that's been extended to everybody at the moment with this suspension of 588G. If, the, if that suspension is removed, the safe harbour regime still exists, but it's important to remember that's an after-the-fact defence. A lot needs to go wrong before you need to rely on the safe harbour defence. If you're pursuing a course of action that's superior to liquidation of the company at that time and you can demonstrate that and you've taken advice and <clears throat> you've looked at all of the... Um, the, the the different implications of the course of action you're pursuing, which might be, and the course of action needs to be a sensible one, um, which might be restructuring the business, renegotiating a contract that's that's underway, raising new money, new, new capital, buying lottery tickets, for example, wouldn't be a wouldn't be a course of action that would be that would probably stand up to the scrutiny of the court, um, and um, and you're able to to satisfy yourself that those other obligations are. Are, um, are up to date and that's documented, uh, then that's something you can rely on later in the event that the, your company ever does go into liquidation and a liquidator does have a shot at the director for uh, trading whilst insolvent and tries to claim liability. So so safe harbour is a, a, a useful thing that directors can avail themselves of, but they need to get advice, they need to get the right advice. If, if the situation is further advanced than that, the other option for directors is voluntary administration. So voluntary administration is a protective regime which directors can avail or that directors can can make an appointment of an external administrator by having a, a director's meeting and the voluntary administrator is appointed by a director's minute. Um, the voluntary administration is is often, I think, a bit maligned in terms of what it does. Some refer to it as a as a as a morgue, um, others as a as a you know as a intensive care suite, or or I prefer to think of it as a boot camp. Depends on where you stand, I suppose. But um, uh, if a director appoints a voluntary administrator, the the appointment of a voluntary administrator immediately suspends all legal action against the company. So people can't start legal action. Any legal action that's underway is is stayed or suspended. The, um, uh, the debts of the company are frozen at that point in time. Um, landlords or owners of equipment used by the company cannot take it back. So as the, the, the company gets a bit of breathing space and a moratorium on, on any action where the administrator and management work together to come up with a plan, which is called a deed of company arrangement, uh, and that may involve 
a sale of the business. It might be it might involve a restructure of the business. It may involve a a compromise offer to creditors. And then that's put together in a plan which is put before creditors and all the creditors vote on it. <clears throat> if the creditors vote in favour, then the company enters into the deed of company arrangement regime and then trades subject to the, the specifications of that deed of company arrangement. Um, and that might be payment of in instalments or cents in the dollar or, or payments of amount over time or some form of debt forgiveness. Um, and if the creditors vote against it, then the company goes into liquidation. So it's it's quite democratic. It gives the the management and the, the directors the opportunity to come up with. It gives them breathing space and time to come up with a proposal or come up with a structure um, in a safe environment. And it gives creditors the ability to accept or reject that um, that plan or that offer. Um, and I think that there'll be a number of operators that that use the voluntary administration regime to to do some balance sheet intervention or balance sheet. Uh, rectification rectification is the wrong word for it, but restructure their balance sheets very quickly because it can happen very fast. The whole process can take place in 25 business days and use that to make their businesses match fit for the environment that we might be moving into in 2021 and beyond. So that's another option for um, um, that directors can, can think about. If a director is of the view that their business is insolvent, they do have a positive obligation to do something and, and voluntary administration is one of the options for directors to, um, to restructure the business. I might add that the, um, the voluntary administration regime is specifically the purposes of that um, section of the Corporations Act, the purpose rather, is to maximise the chances of a business or of as much of the business as possible continuing in existence and failing that, maximise the return to creditors. So it's a very business-friendly regime and it's designed to, to maximise the chances of a business continuing in existence and to preserve jobs. Now, that might mean a company might go into voluntary administration and part of the voluntary administration might be that the business is sold to somebody else and then the company afterwards goes into liquidation but that's still consistent with, with the objectives of the, of the Act because the business is continuing and the employees are keeping their jobs. I think while we've got you, you, and I think this one could be more subjective, um, but you'd have such a good perspective on the mood, if I can call it that, at the moment. You've got uh, some of the larger creditors being landlords and banks, and it'd be interesting just to, you know, obviously we won't hold it to you, but what's your sense of things? Is there still a spirit of we can get through this if we work together, or is it, you know, in danger of looking a little bit nasty? Um, <clears throat> I think there's a sense across the board that things are going to get more difficult and there's a sense of foreboding or of waiting for that to happen, but that's coupled with the sense that we're all going to have to lean into this and we're all going to have to um, uh, sort of face into whatever this together. So I think if you're a, if you're a landlord or if you're a supplier or if you're an operator, uh, everyone's aware that, that things are going to get tough and it's going to be a matter of, um, of accepting that and working through that. Um, so, so a bit of both. I think there's a sense that yes, things are going to get um, going to get steadily, or they're going to get worse before they get better. But they will get better. Um, but in between here and there, there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of pain, and um, um, somehow that's going to be that's going to be translated across the. Um, across the sector so that may be that you know there are suppliers who are expecting that some of their customers will go into voluntary administration for example and they might be looking at getting 60 or 50 cents the dollar for their outstanding amounts um i think there are landlords who are conscious of the fact or very conscious of the fact that their tenants uh, may be struggling financially but the landlords are cognizant of the fact that the landlords made an investment in the in the the, has an investment in in the tenant you know whether it's you know, um, incentives that have been provided or, or fit-out costs or what have you, and, and the best custodian of that investment is the tenant. So it's in the landlord's interest to work with the tenant. So there's a 
there's an expectation it's going to get tough, but a willingness to cooperate. I think this is my this is my take on the from the conversations I'm having with all the various stakeholders and. Basically, I mean, because look, I'm an insolvency practitioner, so most of the people I talk to are in some form of distress. So I might have a bit of a bleak view of um, of things from from um, <laughs> it's kind of like a doctor expecting that everybody in the world's going to be sick. Um, but, um, but but there seems to be that kind of um, um, that that kind of expectation that yeah, we'll get tougher, but we'll, we'll we will have to work together and we'll have to share that um, share that that burden and that pain. Have you um, how pressed are you for time right now? I've got. <clears throat> I've just. I've been waiting for something to come in, but I've, I think we've got about another ten. Or, I've got probably got another ten minutes. Okay, great. Um, I guess going from the, uh, I guess the the darker perspective um, to maybe a bit of light. What, what opportunities do you see on the horizon? Uh, just recall, GFC obviously gave birth to quite a few. Yeah. Um, Acquisition opportunities, obviously through distressed assets, but but a number of groups were able to raise a fair bit of money and also um, coming to existence on the backside of um, a pretty significant crisis. Do you see what positives can you see coming out of this situation? Oh, <clears throat> Look, loads and a lot, and I'm really glad you asked that. It's a um, because there are some positives coming out of it. We're seeing some really innovative stuff happen um, across the industry. Then some of the responses to whether it's whether it's home delivery um, or uh, or innovative ways of managing patrons in venue or moving patrons in and out of venues that's been um, so that I think that there's an opportunity there for operators to amend their business models and taking that even a step further uh, some of the suburban venues that are able to offer um, home office or working away from home kind of facilities or capabilities for a suburban club or a suburban venue that's got Wi-Fi and maybe even a playground for kids and uh, and can and can offer a place to work if you can't work from home and you can't go to the office. That's actually quite a quite a positive. So there's a few of those kind of responses that are coming out where being responsive to the community need because if you, if you live in a if you live in a suburban area and you're not going into the CBD anymore but you've got to work from home except you can't work from home because you, your wife's working as well your husband's working as well um, or you've got children there or it's difficult for whatever reason having somewhere to go um, where you've got Wi-Fi and you've got a, a sort of business center kind of operation and uh, that's actually an innovative innovative response so there are a few things like that that I think are creating opportunities for people to think differently. And, and operators have got permission to reimagine their offerings, and some because of necessity, having to to think really hard about what else can I do with my venue, what does my community need, what what kind of what what can I be responsive to? <clears throat> Excuse me, sorry about that. The next um, the next thing I'd say is that there's there's a lot of liquidity available in the marketplace, and I think that for I think I mentioned before about the cost of needing to reconfigure venues. So if you need if you need to make significant capex to recon, reconfigure a venue to make it COVID compliant or make it match fit for for the existing environment, um, and you don't have the funds for that, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of organisations and people with liquidity that are ready to invest or looking to invest, and some of those may be co investments or some of them may be outright acquisitions, and that's a, I think a big difference between. Uh, during the GFC, there was no liquidity. Um, at the moment, there seems to be a reasonable amount of liquidity available in the market, and I think that's that's that is a difference. So there is there are there are counterpart or counterparties to potential counterparties to to transactions there. So I think there's some positives there as well, um, and I think that besides the the other um, positives of communities getting more in touch with their community assets and whether it's clubs or pubs or restaurants or bars that are in their immediate community area, uh, there seems to be a shift in the consumer mindset to staying closer to home and not ranging as far as maybe they would have previously or, or going to destination or, or entertainment precincts. And that kind of that kind of move is, you know, in, in some ways a positive one as well. When you talk about the liquidity and um, willingness to invest or co-invest or whatever the form that may take, are there certain asset classes that are experiencing higher level of interest than others? It's too early to say. Um, right. There's there's a lot of at the moment. Uh, there's a lot of capital raising going on. A lot of uh, a lot of equity raising happening 
which is which is very very widely reported, and there haven't been um, there hasn't been a huge volume of of transactions. But look for pub assets; they were in great demand um, pre-COVID, and they're in great demand now, and and they will continue to be. And if you take a three-year view. Um, that or a, you know three years isn't that long a, isn't that long a time. I mean, look how quickly this year's gone, right? But uh, but if you take a three year view in terms of an asset class, pubs um, will 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 be will be in great demand again. So I think that's what's maintaining values in in that particular space. Yeah, I kind of I uh, I thought that would be your answer. I, I would imagine that would be very very heavily skewed towards. Pubs, obviously, particularly gaming pubs, and and yes. not so much towards um, food and beverage driven venues in the sense of restaurants. I don't think are probably going to be seeing too much uh, appetite, but um, obviously happy to be proven wrong. No, no, I agree with you. That's that's exactly what I'm. That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, I agree. And is there any observations you can just quickly give us on the hotel accommodation sector uh, as potentially distinct from the pub class or club class? The only thing I'd say is that I think that I'm, I would say that that sector is under immense pressure, and I think that domestic tourism is going to be a surprising is going to be a surprisingly strong revenue source, and I think we can expect to see some really strong uh, domestic demand from people who have rediscovered that a lot of the bucket list things that they've always wanted to do are in Australia. So if we think that that the borders might be closed for, say, the next 12 to 18 months um, and international holidays might not be might not be available for some time and potentially potentially longer, I mean, who knows, but potentially for longer. Um, destinations in Australia, um, so, you know, subject to borders being open and Victoria and New South Wales being acceptable destinations again, um, or or rather even tourists that are welcomed in other states, that's a, that's a whole other story. Um, but... Um, um, that uh, that I think will be a surprising, uh, a surprisingly strong sector, and the spend that Australians have, the, the amount of money Australians spend overseas in international tourism is significant. And if that translates into domestic tourism, then that will be that will be quite strong. But the the sector is is in is under uh, is under extreme pressure at the moment. Um, but I think that's that's probably the key thing that I would. I would suggest that that sector is probably going to see over the next um, uh, over the next twelve to eighteen months a surprisingly high amount of demand from that uh, in that regard. Morgan, you've been really generous with your time, and we can literally hear your phone ringing as we're doing this podcast. Sorry, so we might uh, we might just uh, wrap up with our standard five questions, so you can get on to uh, those incoming calls for uh, either fresh liquidity or for uh, your, your services. Um, hopefully liquidity. Yeah, hopefully. Let's, let's uh, hope it's for liquidity. Um, so uh, you've got these in front of you. So favourite book that you've recently read or podcast that you listen to? Um, I'm not sure it's my favourite book, but the, the most recent book I've read is the um, Malcolm Turnbull autobiography, which I actually found surprisingly enjoyable, um, although um, also surprisingly detailed. I'd just say that if you do read Malcolm Turnbull's book, it's a very, it's a really good insight into um, a different perspective on being able to see things from his perspective rather than reading about it in the newspaper, but you've really got to commit. It's a long, long, long read. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, Favourite album or artist right now? That's easy. It's been the same for quite a long time. Uh, Favourite album is Sonic Temple, The Cult. Ah. Good. Um, and very, uh, we've used the word liquid a couple of times. So, but in this context, your favourite drink? Well, right now, I'd have to say Young Henry's Newtowner. Uh, I've recently discovered it, and um, yeah, I'm enjoying it a bit too much at the moment, as you can probably see through the screen. So. <laughs> We're all enjoying uh, a few things a little too much at the moment. Um, and and uh, and favourite venue? Um. Right now, I'd have to say that my favourite venue is the Pioneers Room at the Royal Automobile Club in Sydney. Um, it's um, it's very yeah, it's very oldy worldy. It's recently been been done up, and um, so they've got lots of Chesterfield sofas and leather chairs and a fireplace. So on a on a on a dark and cold night, it's a very very nice place to be. Is it busy? Are they pumping out new towners there? They are. Oh, they've nice. recently they've recently <laughs> mainly because I've. 
mainly mainly because I I I um I was I threatened to start a petition. They started stocking it. It's been selling quite well, so you can get a young Henry's New Towner there. Oh well, Sam Johnson, if you're listening, there you go. Uh, there's a business model in there somewhere. Um, <laughs> and uh, and you can answer this either with respect to the hospitality sector or perhaps with uh, respect to your own uh, industry, Morgan. But who in the industry are you most inspired by? Um, look, I think in terms of the hospitality sector, um, I was uh, I've been I was quite lucky to once um, sit next to Neil Perry on a plane, and uh, I had an hour chatting to him. And I have to say, I found him an extremely um, inspirational person to to meet and talk to. Just his his um, his quiet sort of dignified determination. Um, he's got a very strong ethical approach. So I, I love his food, and I really like the like his venues. and um, And he's got a genuine passion for the sector, for the hospitality sector, and genuinely wants the sector to be a better place for his sort of involvement in it. So, so I, f- I find him, a, he would be the person I'd say is my uh, person who most inspires me in the hospitality industry. Great answer. Well, um, thanks again for joining us. And uh, I think that it's a, you're a different style guest to the one that we, ones that we normally get on. So hopefully the relationship <laughs> takes, takes uh, you know, some really good, timely insights from the things that you've had to say. And, and uh, we're pleased to hear the dark side, but also the lighter side in terms of the potential opportunities. And I think that uh, hopefully that inspires a few businesses to find a new way through this challenging time. Thanks very much, Michael. Thanks, Luke. It was, it was great to be, uh, it was great to be here. Thanks, Morgan. Appreciate it. No worries. Appreciate the invitation. Thanks. Yes. Thanks so much. One of our shortest episodes ever, but there was a lot to pack in <laughs> in there, wasn't there? Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know. My perspective was that it was, it, it was just actually great hearing him talk. He's, um, as forecasted, uh, exceptionally uh, well-versed in the mechanics of the industry and he's got an exceptional um, perspective on what's happening. Um, like he said, much of it is coming from a position of distress, but um, still obviously very interesting to hear. Um, I learned a lot from it, essentially. And there was a couple of highlights, which I w- wasn't expecting, really. One was the comments on liquidity. I thought I didn't realise that the that there was liquidity in the market for these for this this sector, which uh, may show my own ignorance, but uh, that was that's a good thing. Yeah, uh, that actually didn't surprise me um, as much. I, I, you know, we're seeing there are some businesses out there with a lot of cash that are um, sort of uh, quite happy to spend it. You know, the, the amount of money being reinvested into properties. There are so, there's, there's a number of fairly high-profile venues, um, particularly within the pub class, that um, haven't reopened and are really taking this time to actually um, to renovate, to upgrade. Uh, it's been surprising the amount of businesses that are actually putting cash back in or looking to transact the number of pub sales that have taken place to a high level um, from a, from a um, sale price perspective uh, is pretty significant. So it is interesting, but, um, you know, I guess being armed with the information as to what you can and can't do or, or, or how liable you are given certain states of trade is um, is pretty valuable yeah i suppose it must vary class to class one thing we didn't get a chance to talk to him about was i guess small independent uh, operators bars restaurants and putting two and two together uh and noting his comments on gaming revenue i suppose it might not be that much of a um yeah that might be really that that, that answer that question might answer itself the other thing that i was um interested in was that discussion around suburban work hubs and using mm. assets in that way? Yeah, the I put an article out through um, the shout last week or this week, I can't remember, but um, one of the comments in it, originally I wrote an article talking about post-pivot was the title, but the, I, I kind of forecasted a need and who am I to really forecast it, but um, forecasted a need or an opportunity for businesses to continue to iterate and innovate once they reopen. Um, I commented in the, the most recent article that that activity has, seems to have kind of 
dissipated pretty um, considerably across the market. There's still definitely some venues that are pushing the takeaway and doing really well at it, but it feels like particularly in the pub market, um, operators have opened, gaming has gone through the roof, um, patrons have returned pretty quickly. So the idea around looking for new ways to drive revenue is, is kind of just disappeared. But um, from his perspective, it sounds like he's seeing a lot more um, businesses than, than I am, certainly um, take still, still maintaining those um, activities, which is really, really good, I think, uh, those that keep doing it. There's opportunities to just keep doing that, um, even though certain things might change. If you keep looking at your, your property as, an op- as, as, a, as a vehicle that executes several um, revenue streams or, or product types, then surely that's only better for the long term, right? Yeah, you'd think so. We should do a part two with him, I reckon, and ask him in, say, I don't know, six months what the CBD markets look like versus the suburbs because I think that's going to be the interesting discussion here um, due to that observation in terms of the suburban uptick and the, mm-hmm. just the sheer uh, change in, I guess, rental occupancies in, in the major CBDs in Sydney and Melbourne because it's not saying that the CBDs won't come back. It's just that they are going to be impacted for you know a considerable period of time. I think it's, yeah, you'd have to think that's where a, a serious amount of the pain is going to be felt because that's where it's being felt right now and how quickly people get back into those environments. I mean, looking at the positive things that he said, the domestic tourism, I think once we do get some better border um, flexibility from Queensland in particular, um, and obviously when Melbourne or Victoria becomes part of the um playing field in terms of where you could visit more freely there will be a lot of money spent um in australia you know the overseas trips aren't going to be happening for a while i'm desperate to get on a plane and go to queensland personally but um i think that's there's definitely going to be some opportunity in that individuals or businesses looking at opportunities in more um regional tourist markets because that that could last longer than we expect even post sort of the, the hangover of covid 